Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. So I woke up this morning, Nathan, and the first thing I did, just because I've become kind of accustomed to putting this into my morning protocol, which my morning routine just happens to be one that's probably a little bit more extensive and expansive than what most people would do. But here recently, um, uh, you know, I, I, I try to work out in the morning um, just because it's kind of the best time for me nowadays. And so one of the things I've been trying to do uh, is utilize some kind of precursors to nitric oxide, hint, hint, as to kind of what we'll talk about today. And I've been taking this uh, product called Beat Elite um, about 30 minutes or so prior to workout. And it gets me amped, like absolutely amped for an amazing workout. And I think that it's 11 o'clock my time on Eastern time. And I took that at probably about 630 this morning. And I still feel amped. Like how long does this stuff stay like, you know, amped up in my body for? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. It's a great product. You know, we have um, dozens, of, well, hundreds of professional NCAA athletes that, that take that specific beetroot powder. But that was designed to really kick in and have a, a, a sustained effect and to really start making nitric oxide when your oxygen levels run low. So to push that anaerobic threshold and to give you, you know, more endurance, less lactic acid buildup and just improved performance. Yeah, it's it's been really intriguing to me because I do kind of a combination of high intensity interval training, zone two, like low level heart rate training, and then resistance training. And I think where I've seen the most kind of pronounced effects has been both in the high intensity interval training as well as just like long endurance. So if I'm out for like, let's say a six to 10 mile run, like I just do not feel nearly as fatigued. And I think the most intriguing thing alongside that, yes, we have the subjective experience there, but I also have seen that my heart rate stays lower. Is that like a common effect? Like, do you see that with athletes that heart rate during long endurance training will stay lower when they uh, engage in like in taking in some of these exogenous precursors to nitric oxide? Well, yeah, but I think it, you can't put all these product in, in a single category. There's some that work and there's some that don't. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's what the clinical trials reveal that if you if you have a product that truly generates nitric oxide, it improves performance, it improves mitochondrial efficiencies. So what that means is you're making more ATP with less oxygen. So you're improving the efficiency of oxygen utilization. So that's why you, your heart rate doesn't necessarily have to increase because the workload is, is decreased. So oh. that's how nitric oxide is designed to work. That's how the published clinical trials reveal that it's working. And plus it's dilating blood vessels, it's improving oxygen delivery to individual cells and tissues of the body. And in some people, when they're when they start to exercise, their blood pressure increases, mm -hmm. and then you've got to increase the workload on the heart, and sometimes you've got to increase the heart rate. So nitric oxide basically eliminates all of that and just basically improves your performance. Yeah, super intriguing. And I'm sure I'm sure that we are going to open up a huge can of worms that we could probably spend just absolute hours on, like probably probably you know, a PhD on this, um, which kind of brings me, you know, before we put the cart above the horse or ahead of the horse here, let me introduce, um, you know, Dr. Nathan Bryan, who is like the expert on nitric oxide. I've listened to a lot of podcasts and information on nitric oxide, but nothing has been as informative as what Dr. Bryan has provided me. So uh, Nathan, do you mind just giving us kind of just a short term introduction, maybe like resume instead of CV as to kind of your experience, your background, kind of the things that you've kind of you know, spent your life working on in terms of uh, nitric oxide? I mean, I've always been interested in science and medicine. I got a d degree in biochemistry from the University of Texas at Austin and then a PhD in molecular and cellular physiology at LSU School of Medicine in Shreveport. And it was there in the early 2000s, I guess around 2000, 2001, that I was introduced into this concept of nitric oxide or this molecule nitric oxide. I was working with a pharmacologist. Uh, the Nobel Prize had just been awarded in 1998, and we were fortunate to have one of the 
guys who shared the Nobel Prize to come and give a lecture before our medical school. And I had a chance to, to have dinner with, with Lou Ignaro and kind of pick his brain and realize, you know, there was so, so much excitement around nitric oxide, but yet so much to be learned. And so I thought, well, this is a good job security. There's a lot to be learned. There's a lot. We didn't even have analytical techniques to measure physiological levels of nitric oxide. And so that's really what I spent my PhD on is developing uh, sensitive and selective analytical methods where you could detect physiological amounts of nitric oxide. And then our job was to create a fingerprint of NO biology in different diseases, whether it's, you know, heart disease, diabetes, you name it, we could figure out how much nitric oxide is being produced or not. And so that was how I got into it. And then I went to Boston University School of Medicine for a, a postdoctoral fellowship. And then a couple of years later, I was recruited by one of the other guys that won the Nobel Prize, Fred Murad, and that was my uh, first faculty position at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston in 2005. So that's where it all started, and you know we just started enabling patents and writing patents and invention disclosures to the university, and today I have, I think, over two dozen issued U.S. international patents and a number of products that we've commercialized over the years, but uh, it's been quite the journey to, to see this entire field transform over the past 20 years. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, you kind of hit it at the right place at the right time, which is really incredible to be at such, uh, you know, at such an interesting place. Like you're at the start of the uh, of the science and kind of the uncovering and discovery to be able to then pioneer everything that you've been able to pioneer, which is, I'm sure, really cool. I mean, not a lot of people will get to do that, right? I mean, a lot of people kind of jump in, you know, you know, maybe years and years after something has been discovered, or they're kind of at like not necessarily the back end of the science, but they're certainly not at the beginning or kind of the inception, uh, which is a really cool place to be. And, you know, nitric oxide is, is an, and we're going to talk about what that is because, you know, a lot of listeners may not understand kind of what that is or kind of have, you know, a basic working knowledge of it. But, you know, I was exposed to uh, the the kind of, I guess you could say, the study of nitric oxide back in like, let's say, the early to mid-2000s or so when really it was just kind of talked about in terms of a bodybuilding supplement that was used for energy and pump. And I kind of, came to learn too that I think a lot of it was you know necessarily not taking <laughs> nitric oxide precursors it was just kind of like a crap ton of caffeine and stimulants that was kind of giving the right. you know so-called energy and I found out a lot from your work that you know a lot of times these supplements that people are taking as you know pump enhancers or you know recovery type tools for you know working out are not really necessarily working on the nitric oxide pathways so I'd love to kind of open up that can of worms but I think it would you know best serve kind of our, our audience for you to give us an overview of what is this thing that is nitric oxide? So maybe you could talk about the basic biochemistry of nitric oxide, what it is, how it's produced, how it's utilized. I'll let you take it from there. It's what we call a signaling molecule. It's how cells in the body communicate with one another. And in different organ systems, this means different things. So in the cardiovascular system, it's produced by the lining of the blood vessel called the endothelial cells. And then it signals the smooth muscle cells that surround the blood vessels to relax and dilate. And so with that action, you get vasodilation, you get an increase in blood flow and oxygen delivery downstream. In the central nervous system, it, it acts as a neurotransmitter, so it helps neurons signal and communicate within the brain. Uh, and in the immune system, it's really a, how our body fights off invading pathogens from it kills bacteria, viruses. It's really become important and critical in this time of COVID because it's the people that can't make nitric oxide that are most at risk for getting COVID, hmm. hospitalized from COVID, and even death from COVID. Is there studies on that, or is that kind of basic from your, your understanding of biochemistry of nitric oxide? There are published clinical trials. In fact, I have a drug, in, a nitric oxide drug, in phase three clinical trials for COVID. Wow. And so we're seeing, you know, if we catch patients within 72 hours of, of diagnosis and symptoms, we can start the nitric oxide therapy and, uh, you know, this is an FDA-cleared uh, clinical trial. We haven't unblinded the data, but we've already seen a statistically significant differences between the placebo group and the patients getting the active drug. That's and there's precedence for that in the literature because even in, in critical patients that are on a ventilator in the ICU, if you give them inhaled nitric oxide gas, you can see their blood oxygen levels improve. Uh, so it's, it's really a, a very important emerging therapeutic, not just for COVID, but for any other respiratory virus or any infection for that matter. So getting back to what nitric oxide is, it and does, it does a lot of things. And so the, the critical thing is when, and people don't recognize this until they become compromised in their ability to make nitric oxide. Then they develop high blood pressure, they develop sexual dysfunction, insulin resistance, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, peripheral artery disease, 
liver dysfunction, kidney disease. I mean, it's the root of all age-related chronic disease, the loss of nitric oxide. So this is a very diverse molecule indeed. So how, like you talk about, it's when people start to see troubles and they see the deleterious health effects when they are in, unable to produce nitric oxide. Like, what are the main causes of that? Like, is, it, is this just kind of a natural occurring age process or are there things that, uh, the, that people are doing that are causing this? Like, what's been kind of your own, uh, discovery there? Well, it's all of the above. And if you look at kind of population genetics and what are population-based studies, you'll see that the older you get, the less nitric oxide you make. <clears throat> and that comes from this enzyme, nitric oxide synthase, that the older you get, a lot of this is determined by diet and lifestyle and to some extent genetics. Um, but that enzyme becomes dysfunctional, it becomes uncoupled, and it longer, longer, no longer produces nitric oxide. But that was the first pathway to be discovered, and that's the, the, the pathway of the enzyme that converts L-arginine to nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. But more recently, we discovered that you can get nitric oxide through the diet, and this comes from eating green leafy vegetables. You mentioned beets earlier. Mm -hmm. And these products contain inorganic nitrate, which are then converted to nitrite and nitric oxide by bacteria that live in and on our body. So we can rescue the other pathway simply by improving our dietary consumption of green leafy vegetables or plant-based diets. But the problem with that, Jay, is that if you use mouthwash, you disrupt this pathway. And there are 200 every morning and use mouthwash. Yeah, And not coincidentally, there are 200 million Americans that have an unsafe elevation in blood pressure. Wow, interesting. What, what is it about the mouthwash? Well, the mouthwash is an antiseptic, so it disrupts the oral bacteria. And so the bacteria that live in and on our body are there to do specific things. And we've published and other groups have published that if you use mouthwash, it disrupts these nitrate-reducing bacteria, decreases the diversity of the oral microbiome, and completely shuts down nitric oxide production. And you can measure that because within seven days of starting a mouthwash, you can see an elevation in blood pressure. And that's because you're disrupting nitric oxide production. And the other critical thing, I was on the doctor show last year where we revealed that if you use mouthwash, you eliminate the protective effects of exercise. Oh. I mean, so mouthwash may be the, one of the worst things you can do for your over, overall cardiovascular health. And so I tell people, look, if you want to know how to make nitric oxide, then you got to do two things. Stop doing the things that disrupt nitric oxide production and start doing the things that promote it. And the things that disrupt it are antiseptic mouthwash, antacids, another 200 million Americans are using antacids daily. This completely shuts down nitric oxide production. In fact, there's data showing that people who have been on PPIs, a specific form of um, antacids, for three to five years have about a 40% higher incidence of heart attack and stroke. Wow. So these aren't trivial matters. Yeah. These are very important uh, public health issues that unfortunately nobody knows anything about. Yeah. So basically, and, and correct me if I'm hearing you incorrectly, um, that there are bacteria in the mouth that are responsible for producing enzymes, enzymes that convert what uh, we're taking in exogenously into nitric oxide. And when we eliminate those bacteria through antiseptics like mouthwash, and I'm also assuming something like, let's say, fluoride toothpaste, that that then inhibits our ability to produce nitric oxide? Yes, and the data are very clear. So these bacteria, the bacteria that we're interested in are called nitrate reducers, and so they express a nitrate reductase enzyme, and humans don't have this enzyme. So we're 100% dependent upon the bacteria. So if we're killing off the guys that do this for us, then our body becomes deficient in nitric oxide, your blood pressure goes up, um, and bad things start happening. And it really is the earliest stages of chronic disease. And you made another good point. You know, fluoride is a potent antiseptic as well as a neurotoxin that kills your thyroid function. So you have to stop using fluoride-based toothpaste, fluoride-based uh, mouthwashes or rinses. That and antiseptic mouthwashes. I mean, when I get people off mouthwashes and fluoride toothpaste, their life changes. Hmm. Their thyroid begins to function again. Their blood pressure some, most of the time normalizes. And then when you combine that with weaning them off antacids, I mean, the body's able to perform where otherwise it couldn't. 
Yeah, that is so interesting because, you know, I don't know if any dentists are tuning in right now, but if you talk to just about any conventional dentist, I mean, the two things that they're always recommending is to, you know, brush your teeth multiple times a day with fluoride. They they are not for, a lot of them, I should say, are not for, uh, you know, fluoride-free toothpaste and to use an antiseptic, you know, mouthwash like Listerine or so forth. And so what you're saying is, is that that can actually do a significant harm to nitric oxide production, which you've indicated is kind of at the root of so many health-related problems and optimization. Uh, but this is something that's being passed around kind of in the general public as just kind of like, you know, this is what we do. Like, this is a part of our common-held belief. Uh, I find that super intriguing. Like, what's typically kind of the the response that you get from a dentist, let's say, when, when you say, yeah, you know, this is kind of the evidence is leading this direction. Have you gotten pushback on that? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love, I love that you just laughed. You're like, I don't even need, need to respond. Like, of course. <laughs> in, fa- in fact, I was I spoke at a dental event this past weekend in Seattle, and this is a, what's called a, mainly integrative International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. So these dentists have recognized that the dangers of mercury amalgam root canal or, or fillings, and the dangers of root canals, and the use of fluoride. So this is a, an innovative group of dentists that get it. And I first lectured them probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, but it was eye-opening to them now. But now that the challenge is with the mainstream dentist, you know, and even recommendations from the American Dental Association, this goes against everything they teach. And so when you present this data, and I just kind of open their eyes to it, obviously they don't believe it because they've been taught otherwise. But when you present the data to them and show them that chlorhexidine or fluoride or antiseptic mouthwash is causing an increase in blood pressure, which is the number one risk factor for cardiovascular disease, the number one killer of men and women worldwide. They can't ignore this. So I tell people your dentist can be your best friend or your worst enemy. If you've got a dentist that's, that practices mainstream dentistry that does root canals and uses fluoride mouthwash and rinses and does root canals and puts mercury amalgam in, in fillings for cavities, that dentist is your worst enemy because he's just set you up for a lifetime of misery and early death. Hmm. But to the contrary, if you've got dentists who understand how the body works, you know, the mouth is connected to the heart. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's kind of like the hip bones connected to the leg bone, right? So you can't ignore that. In fact, our entire health begins in the mouth uh, from the foods we eat to the exposure of pathogens to how our body works. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and if you're killing the good guys at this earliest stages, then you know bad things happen, and the clinical data are revealing that you can't. They can't ignore it anymore. Yeah, so th- I mean that's a key takeaway point from this. Uh, you know, part of the conversation is that like we really have to protect the bacteria in our mouth and not destroy them through mouthwash. You know, through fluoride-based toothpaste. And I'm just wondering, uh, Doctor Brian, for you, um, is are there other ways that we're eliminating bacteria in our mouth that aren't coming necessarily from uh, like you know an- you know antiseptic or uh, type mouthwash or-, or toothpaste? Are there other things that we're doing that could be eliminating this bacteria? And then on the flip side, what can we do to increase that good? bacteria that helps with the synthesis of nitric oxide? The number one thing is using mouthwash. I mean, it's over 200 million Americans, the statistics are clear, that get up and use mouthwash at least once a day, most of the time twice a day. The other thing is if you have an active oral infection. So the, the, the mouth microbiome is a, is, a, is a distinct ecology. And so you have these different bacteria, and it's a competition for resources. So if you've got an active oral infection, the bad guys overpopulate the good guys and, and wreak havoc to where if you maintain some diversity and replete the good guys and kill the infections and get rid of periodontal disease and gingivitis, then the good guys can actually repopulate, maintain the ecology and keep the bad guys at bay. And you, you keep a nice, uh, diverse microbiome and things function as they should. So I tell people and people with chronic disease that haven't been well managed with modern medicine Go see a good dentist because I guarantee you all of your health problems are related to something going on in your mouth, whether it's an asymptomatic infection from a root canal tooth or maybe a symptomatic toothache or apparent periodontal disease or gingivitis. All of that has to be resolved if your body is going to heal and get better. Yeah. Okay, cool. So go see a good dentist. And then like, what about replenishing that bacteria? Is it basically just kind of doing what you've mentioned? Or are there other ways like, for instance, a lot of people are supplementing with uh, probiotics or even two prebiotics um, for gut microbiome? Is it is the same kind of go for the mouth biome as well? Or is it a completely different subject? It's completely different subject. The bacteria that live in the 
small intestines are completely different that live in the large intestines in the colon that are completely different than the bacteria that live in your mouth for obvious reasons. They've got different jobs to do. So I've never found a prebiotic that, that's on the market that's worked to replenish and replete the, the oral bacteria. Mm-hmm. One thing we have found, and we published on this probably five or six years ago, that if you just increase the consumption of nitrate, you basically allow these bacteria. So you can wake these bugs up. So these are facultative anaerobes. They respire on oxygen if it's there. If not, then they reduce nitrogen in the form of nitrate. Mm-hmm. So if you just feed them more nitrate by eating more green leafy vegetables or some nitrate-rich meat powder, then that gives these bacteria a substrate to work on, to respire on, and the metabolic byproduct of that is nitrite or nitric oxide, mm-hmm. which then generates nitric oxide in the body. So it's really very simple. You know, this is a complex, complicated science, but it still gets back to the basics of diet and lifestyle and making good decisions about what you put in your body and what you eat and what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, I love that we can kind of establish that foundation because it's so true. So many people are looking to kind of hack their way into better health. But really, if we look at the basics and foundations of what good quality health are, you know, a lot of times we see it as kind of like this four prong system. So we have, you know, good nutrition. So what we're putting in our body in terms of food, good exercise. Then we also look at like the stress resiliency, stress adaptation, which is a primary focus of this podcast. So how well we're managing stress and then also sleep. So those are kind of like the four major prongs. And so I want to talk about that concept of food and what we're putting in. I know you said some of the best sources are, uh, you know, eating these, these leafy greens, dark leafy greens, beets. Um, uh, what type of dark leafy greens are we talking about? Like arugula, chard, like spinach? Um, are there better sources than others? Talk a little bit about the food. I wish I had a simple answer for you, but on average, so if we just, if we kind of speak broadly, the darker the green vegetables, typically the, the higher the nitrate content. Mm-hmm. And you can see this, you know, I live in rural Texas uh, on several hundred acres. And so we, we know when we fertilize our pastures that the, the plants and the grass get a really a dark green versus the ones that aren't. They're deficient in nitrogen or nitrate. So it's the same thing in the vegetables of the plants we eat. So the darker the, the vegetable, on average, the higher the nitrate. And so that's kale, spinach, uh, arugula, Swiss chard. Those are kind of the ones that are highest. But the other thing we realized, Jay, I guess probably in 2015, is we went around to a retail grocer in five cities across the U.S. We went to New York, Raleigh, Chicago, Dallas, and Los Angeles and grabbed five vegetables, the same vegetables, from the same retail grocer, brought it back to the lab and analyzed the nitrate content. And even within the same vegetable category, for example, celery, if you lived in Dallas, you could eat about six or seven stalks of celery and get enough nitrate to normalize your blood pressure. But if you bought the same celery from the same retail grocery in New York, you'd have to eat 50 to 60 stalks of celery. Wow. Is that so just because you, of where it com- is coming from or because of the travel? or? Well, no, it's, it's based on regional farming practices and soil conditions. So we know that lightning and lightning storms fix nitrogen in the air into nitrate or ammonia through this high-energy reaction. So in the areas that have a lot of lightning storms, primarily the Rust Belt in the south where these are grown, then there's more nitrate in the soil. Where up north, there's less night lightning storms and probably less um, uh, different farming practices. And the interesting. interesting thing is we compared that organically grown vegetables to conventionally grown vegetables. And organically grown vegetables have on average about a 10 times less nitrate than conventionally grown. Because of the because there's no nitrogen being used as like fertilizer. That's right. Wow. That's right. Because to get an organic label, you're not allowed to add any synthetic fertilizers to the soil. That's interesting. You can't eat enough organic vegetables to get enough nitrate in your diet to generate any nitric oxide. So does that mean for you, because I know a lot of the listeners here are going to be like, well, oh, crap, like all I eat is organic because they stay away from conventional, you know, f- vegetables and fruits because, you know, high pesticides, glyphosate, right. things like that that could be neurotoxic. Uh, what say you like for you? Do you have like a blend of organic and conventional or are you just maybe not as worried with maybe potential neurotoxicity or mycotoxins of conventional uh, farming? Well, what's what's kind of your take on there? Now, of course, we're worried about it because it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, there's glyphosate on everything. And the corn we eat, the, the wheat, and all this. So, you know, you try, you try to be smart about it. And so I eat a balanced diet and try to eat, you know, we live in rural Texas and we try to, we eat local. Mm-hmm. And so I, 
typically when we try to, I never go to the grocery store, but my wife does all the shopping, but she typically makes wise choices for us and the kids and the family. But in terms of nitric oxide, I realize that we're never going to eat enough vegetables typically to restore our nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese diet, we've compared this to different cultural diets, the Japanese diet, the Mediterranean diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. If you follow those dietary patterns, then you probably may get enough. But most Americans are only getting about 150 milligrams of nitrate per day from their diet. And mm -hmm. that's just the standard American diet or the SAD diet. So there's no way we can eat enough. And most Americans don't. And that's the reason most Americans are overweight, hypertensive, pre-diabetic or diabetic. I mean, that explains the entire epidemic. So then how do we get how do we get it in? I mean, we're trying to build it, uh, you know, uh, endogenously through things like exercise. Or are we doing things like supplementing? Like what's what's kind of the best route if we're not able to get it from organically grown farming and, you know, eating it? Wh where do we go from there? Well, it's always best to give the body what it needs and the body does does its job. <clears throat> but you have to give it what it needs. Right. So you know, there's standardized products out there that have a, a standardized amount of nitrate that you can take as a supplement. The other way is just, you know, exercise, moderate physical exercise, even in this aerobic exercise. It doesn't even have to be anaerobic because mm -hmm. when you start exercising, that tells your body, hey, I need to get extra oxygen and nutrients to the heart because my heart's beating. So what does it do? It tells the body, I need to make more nitric oxide to support the increased metabolic demand on the heart. Or I need to dilate the blood vessels in my biceps if I'm starting to lift weights because uh, I'm using these muscles and they're, they need more oxygen to make more ATP and energy. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Well, your body makes nitric oxide. Right. So the, and then the other way is, you know, sunlight. There's certain wavelengths of light that um, release nitric oxide on the skin that can even penetrate into the skin and release nitric oxide from preformed stores. There's infrared saunas that I use on a daily basis that are good at releasing nitric oxide. Again, stop doing the things that disrupt nitric oxide production like mouthwash, fluoride, and, and acids, and start doing the things that promote it. Eat a good balanced diet, lots of green leafy vegetables. If you have to supplement, you have to supplement, but then get outside, exercise, and enjoy life. Yeah, I, I like that you're highlighting kind of these basics before biohacks is kind of what I say. So it's basically like before we go into supplementation, we need to two, do two different things. One of them I'm going to actually going to ask you about now, and then we'll talk about the other one as well. Uh, but the two different things is that we need to test. So we need to see kind of where we are. And then we need to do something about it that is kind of really at the foundation of health and well-being. And then we can start to introduce more of these kind of like hacks, I, you know, as people call it, or biohacks kind of in the end to optimize. But I, I do like this idea, number one, of testing nitric oxide. And people may be curious, well, like, how do I know if I'm deficient in my ability to synthesize or produce nitric oxide? Uh, and I believe that there is an answer that you may have here, uh, but I'll let that one, I'll leave it up to you. So how do we test our nitric oxide levels? Well, it's a good question. And when we started um, maybe 20 years ago in the field, there was no way to measure nitric oxide or determine nitric oxide in, in patients or in humans. In about 2010, I developed a salivary nitric oxide test strip, and it was kind of the first point of care kind of indicator of what your nitric oxide levels are. So it's, it's kind of like the, the urinary dipstick, but mm -hmm. instead of uh, putting urine on it, you just apply some saliva. You can spit on the end of the test strip, and if it turns bright pink, then that tells us that your body can generate nitric oxide, whether endogenously or it's from the bacteria that are reducing nitrate to nitrite. Mm. So that was, you know, it gave people a, a sense of what their nitric oxide levels are. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who thought they were doing well in good shape and didn't admit that maybe they had a little bit of ED or uh, elevation in blood pressure, the test strip reveals that and say, well, okay, you're not optimized. Yeah. So now what do you need to do to do that? So, you know, that's been a fun little tool to use. But, you know, I tell people it's a good tool to have in your toolbox, but it's, it's not the only thing you should be using. Really, the true readout of your nitric oxide status is what is your blood pressure? Mm. Do you have any, any degree of uh, erectile dysfunction? Do you have insulin resistance, uh, pre-diabetes or diabetes? Do you have exercise intolerance? If you get on the treadmill and you can't go more than two to three minutes or four minutes, then your body's not making nitric oxide. Hmm. That's the reason you can't perform. 
Yeah, really. So all of those are interconnected with deficiencies in nitric oxide. So you can do the test strips. I think those are really helpful. I picked up some of those from the, uh, uh, from the, from the website, which is, I think, humanin.com. Human, yeah, humanin.com, which is the human power of N. Is that right? The company that makes those? And then I, I used that one. And then, uh, I was actually noticing that I was, uh, not on the depleted, but the low end. So it was just kind of like the light pink, or at least that's where I think it was at. And so for me, I started doing some different things like, you know, kind of uh, changing up a little bit of my exercise regimen, um, doing some more type breath work exercises, which I want to talk about here in just a second about the role of breathing in nitric oxide. And then I also started supplementing with, uh, you know, a couple of different things that you um, have patents on, uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong. I started using Neo 40 and then Beat Elite for workouts. And um, I've noticed now for the last probably two weeks or so after kind of starting that protocol that I'm, I'm optimal in all of those areas. And I've never had uh, you know any difficulties with blood pressure, with blood sugar regulation? Um, those just haven't been kind of you know things that that I've had to deal with. But it's been interesting to test with these strips and then kind of see this dominant change effect that I've seen. It's it's kind of exciting too because you know when you get to see change effect like on these test strips, it's exciting because you're like okay that means I, I must be actually doing something that is increasing my nitric oxide load. And off air I was telling you too the other thing that I've just noticed is a spike in heart rate variability as well as a a, a decreasing in my overall baseline readings and heart rate, which I've found fascinating as well. And this all began just with me testing to see where I was and then making subsequent changes based on kind of kind of those those readings. Um, is that what you kind of typically see people do kind of utilize it as a baseline and then kind of test after they've included some of these other things like Neo 40 and you know changes in exercise and, and so forth? Yeah, it's interesting. You got really two two different classes of people. You got people who are chronically ill that are sick and tired of being sick and tired when the medical system has failed them. And so they're just looking for anything, right? They're grabbing for straws. And so they'll try our products and unmistakably they get better. And I get dozens, if not hundreds of phone calls and emails every week from, from people like this. And then there's people like you and me, Jay, who are aware of our health status. We're in great shape. We do the things that take care of us and it allows us to test these different things and to see how it affects our own performance and you can see the metrics you know i know when i go out and run two to three miles what my level of exertion is and if i i take the nitric oxide prior to i mean you get through that same run or same bout of exercise with much less exertion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. You know, one of the things too that I've heard you mention, I'd love for you to talk about it, is that not all nitric oxide supplements are made the same. So for instance, I mentioned the story about how when I started bodybuilding, I would take these you know nitric oxide precursors, typically just a lot of caffeine, and then a lot of like, let's say L-arginine and citrulline. But kind of from what I've heard from you, and I'd love for you to explain, is that these necessarily do not equate, like taking arginine or taking citrulline does not necessarily equate equate to us then increasing kind of these endogenous uh, nitric oxide molecules. Is that correct? And can you tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, why some supplements are not as good as others? Yeah, it all goes back to the biochemistry and the understanding of how nitric oxide is made in the body. So when the Nobel Prize was awarded in 98, you saw a a rush to market with a number of, you know, pre-workout supplements directed toward bodybuilders and weight training with this pump. And those companies contacted me very early on, probably 20 years ago, and they go, hey, can we figure out how to take caffeine out of your – well, they asked me to, to evaluate the product. And I go, well, you got to take caffeine out because caffeine's a vasoconstrictor. If you want to vasodilate, you got to take out the vasoconstrictor. And they go, well, we tried that, but nobody buys the product. <laughs> take caffeine out. And I go, well, you don't have a nitric oxide product. you got a caffeine product exactly. with a bunch of you know, good window dressing. So those were the, kind of the, the uh, arginine and citrulline-based products. But your body makes enough. Both of these amino acids are what we call semi-essential amino acids, meaning that you get some of it from your diet, from the breakdown of proteins. But it's made endogenously through the urea cycle. So you don't need to supplement with this. You already have more than enough to saturate the enzyme that makes nitric oxide than to supplement. The, pr- the problem is, and there's been at least three published clinical trials on this, that if you take uh, too much arginine, in patients with uh, that have had a heart attack or patients with peripheral artery disease, they actually get worse. And they had to stop these clinical trials because they were killing more people than the placebo group. And so this was back in 2006. So you have to use some caution here because you can get into nitrogen imbalance. The other thing is it's counterintuitive, but you increase the expression of an enzyme called arginase. 
which then disposes of the arginine through ornithine and urea and redirects it away from making nitric oxide. So none of this science made sense to me when I started it over 20 years ago because it, the body responds to what you give it. If you give it too much arginine or citrulline, it's going to dispose of it as urea in the urine and divert it away from nitric oxide. The other thing is your body makes enough already what it needs. And then, you know, in 2012, there was a, a bunch of products that hit the market based on beetroot because a lot of the Olympic athletes were using beetroot juice. And there were a number of studies showing they could enhance performance. Now they're a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. And I tested all of these on the market, and the majority of them, 95% of the beet products out there, are what we call dead beet products. The only thing they do is turn your poop and your urine pink and give you a little bit of anxiety, but they do not generate any nitric oxide. It's yeah. window dressing. Yeah. So it's, it's creating consumer uh, confusion. They think, well, I'm taking beetroot. Beetroot makes nitric oxide. And I go, no. No, it doesn't. In most cases, it does not because people don't understand that you've got to have certain components in these beet powders in order for the body to utilize it to make nitric oxide. And 95% of the products out there don't have it. It's just so interesting how supplement companies will like just, you know, hear about the latest research on something, just kind of put the cheapest product, I, mean, I would argue cheapest product they can into market with these kind of broad stroke claims. And then it's researchers like you who know what you're talking about in regards to this stuff and to the science and to the biochemistry. And, and you can kind of call them out on it, which is great. I mean, we need that because that saves us a lot of time and money and hassle. And it actually can improve our health if we're taking and doing the right things. So I really appreciate kind of your you know your overview of that I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit because I know a lot of our listeners are tuning in because they want to hear about the relationship between nitric oxide and then stress adaptation stress resiliency and mental well-being so kind of from your research kind of your experience how is nitric oxide related to our uh, to the human stress response and then to mental well-being well, it's involved in all that so mental well-being in any neurological or psychological condition, and this is work by Daniel Amen, who's shown through probably the largest library of human spec scans of the brain in the world. But any neurological disease or psychological disease is all characterized by a disruption in the regulation of blood flow to certain regions of the brain. So you can map this out in bipolar patients and, and anxiety and ADD patients and post-concussion syndrome and Parkinson's. Uh, it's all a dysregulation of blood flow to certain regions of the brain. So... Why is that? Well, it's because your body's not making nitric oxide at the right place at the right time to regulate blood flow to certain regions of the brain upon demand. So it's a nitric oxide deficiency problem. Then the other thing is, you know, if you have chronic stress and increased cortisol levels, this kind of puts your body in a fight or flight response and shuts down nitric oxide production. So your, pair, your autonomic nervous system, you know, is controlled by nitric oxide and your autonomic nervous system can release nitric oxide. So it's this, it's this two-way street. But the problem is people don't deal with stress or they're under chronic stress and it's not managed well and it's wreaking havoc on their body. In order to overcome that, the very first thing you have to do is restore the production of nitric oxide. And it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to fix everything else. But that's kind of the first step to allow your body to then give it, you know, some uh, neurogenic um, amino acids like dopamine or tyrosine or whatever it needs to make uh, these excitatory um, uh, amino acids or neurotransmitters. So the nitric oxide is always the first step. And then from there, you can start interrogating what else, because until you do that, your body's not going to, even if you supplement, your body's not going to get those to where they need to be because there's a clinically shown decrease in nitric oxide production in that region. So I don't know if you've come across this research or if you have, you know, any understanding of kind of what might be going on here. But, you know, again, my, my background is in psychophysiology, the human stress response, and then utilizing heart rate variability as the proxy for changes in the nervous system, uh, more particularly in the autonomic nervous system. And one of the things that I've noticed is that once I've increased uh, my overall nitric oxide levels, and I've done this through many things that I mentioned before, but particularly taking like a supplement that is Neo40, uh, 
which I've found to be extremely effective, I've noticed these increases in parameters or biometrics of heart rate variability, um, including my arm SSD values, which is a time domain indice of heart rate va- variability, and my HF or high frequency band. And I didn't know if this was because of the changes that happen in the barrel reflex mechanism or if there's changes in like the vagus nerve or vagal attenuation. Uh, any understanding as to what might be kind of a part of the physiology or role in nitric oxide in the changes of, of that part of my nervous system? Well, I think it's, a, it, it's on a number of things. So the AV node, which controls kind of your heart rate, you know, in people with arrhythmias, you can have ischemia to that particular region of the heart. And ischemia means decreased blood flow because they're lacking nitric oxide. So that'll affect the electrical conductance of the heart. And we've seen this in patients with chronic arrhythmia. If you restore nitric oxide and give them a nitric oxide product, sometimes they'll get into normal uh, sinus rhythm simply by restoring nitric oxide. So you restore blood flow to the um, AV node or the SA node and electrical conductance improves. Um, Then the other thing is every major endocrine organ that releases hormones needs nitric oxide as the signal to release the hormones from that endocrine gland. So if you can't make nitric oxide, then the hormone glands don't get the signal that, oh, I need to release testosterone or estrogen or I need some thyroid stimulating hormone or, oh, I need some cortisol. Then if you don't have nitric oxide, you get endocrine dysfunction. And so it's all interconnected. Uh, but it's based on the signal, and nitric oxide is at its core a signaling molecule. And if you lose an important signal in the body, then bad things happen. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's super intriguing just to kind of watch these biometrics change as I kind of increase my nitric oxide load, and I and, and I and I've liked seeing that. I just you know was one of those things where like I also didn't know too if like my body is just hasn't been used to kind of like having this high of a nitric oxide load, so it's kind of having like this like large swing effect in these biometrics, or is this something that's going to be kind of like you know conditioned and I'll see it go back down because the body will just get used to it. Like when you're let's say supplementing with um, exogenous types of supplements for nitric oxide like is this something that uh, that you see kind of the body just kind of get used to and the thermostat like ends up changing in that direction or do like you see that it it continues to have more and more effect the more and more you use it well i I think you're going to get it both an acute effect from taking it and then there's known and published adaptive effects of this so and that's that's really where the the performance enhancing effects come in because it's been shown that it usually takes about five days, five days to a week to see the adaptive effects. And so what this means is you have more mitochondria, so it induces mitochondrial biogenesis. So you have more mitochondria utilizing oxygen more efficiently to generate ATP. So that's the adaptive effects that, and I think even when you get off, the published literature shows that that adaptive effect will remain provided you keep your exercise regimen. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, your body always responds to what you give it. And, you know, too much of something is bad and too, too little of something is bad and too much of something can be bad. So when you overwhelm the system to where the body cannot respond, then, you know, some bad things are going to happen. So I think it's important to titrate in the right amount of nitric oxide. You see these changes. You'll see the acute changes from taking it immediately. But you also see these adaptive changes that have been published. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, in in terms of kind of staying with the stress, mental well-being uh, aspects of nitric oxide influence, you know, one thing that I've heard about um, both from you and listening to your podcast, as well as hearing from other like breathwork experts is kind of the role of breathing in nitric oxide, particularly nasal breathing. And I know that James Nestor in his book, Breath, actually kind of highlighted the importance of nasal breathing and nitric oxide. So is this a, is this a truth or a falsehood that kind of increases? Increasing kind of deep nasal breathing is effective in increasing nitric oxide, and why so? Well, the answer is it can, but it doesn't necessarily always does. And so it goes back to this age-related decline in nitric oxide production. So the same enzyme, nitric oxide synthase, that's found in the endothelial cells is also found in the epithelial cells of our nasal airway. And if that enzyme is dysfunctional in the lining of the blood vessel, then it's going to be dysfunctional in the epithelial cells. So you can activate it, stimulate it all day long, but it's never going to produce nitric oxide. And this has been demonstrated in published work that the older you get, the less nitric oxide you can detect from nasal breathing. Hmm. So what you got to do is you got to restore the function of that enzyme 
and then start breathing through the nose, generate nitric oxide, and you can, you know, that deep breathing has been shown to, to lower blood pressure through a nitric oxide mediating mechanism. It has calming effects uh, through a nitric oxide mediated um, mechanism. Um, so nasal breathing is critically important, but people that do it aren't always generating nitric oxide. You have to mm. fix the enzyme that makes it, and then you can generate nitric oxide when you nasal breathe. Yeah, yeah, basically. So it's 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 like kind of get at the root cause, fix kind of the, the engine prior to, to kind of, you know, trying to, you know, it's it's almost like kind of you got that, that nasty engine that's not really working because you haven't, you know, changed out the oil. You've been using kind of like crappy gas, and so you're that's trying true. to put something into it that's like not going to be that effective. Fix the engine, and then kind of you can add the gas that'll make the engine work um, even more effectively. Is, is that kind of an okay analogy? No, that's a, that's a perfect example. And it's, you know, I tell people you can't, if you got a blown up engine, you can't put gas in and expect to work. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you got to yeah. fix the engine and, and optimize it to where the body can perform as it's designed to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, tell me this, um, Dr. Bryan, is there a difference uh, in the way that nitric oxide is synthesized uh, from uh, in, 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 in genders? I know you said age is kind of a key variable, but how about for women? Um, is there a difference in like absorption? Is there a difference in synthesis that women should focus on as compared to men? Well, the data are very clear that women typically, premenopausal women, typically make more nitric oxide than their age-matched male counterparts. And this, this can be explained by the effects of estrogen. So estrogen has a positive effect on nitric oxide production. But when women meet, reach menopause, their estrogen levels drop and their nitric oxide levels drop precipitously. And it's only at menopause that the risk factors for heart attack and stroke meet or then exceed that of their age-matched male counterparts. So it's very important. So if, if you've got young women, it's important to maintain their estrogen levels. If you've got perimenopausal or, or menopausal women, it's very important that they optimize their hormones through bioidenticals because a lot of things feed on these sex hormones, and nitric oxide is one of them. Hmm. So for women who are postmenopausal, um, are they much more likely to have to supplement? Um, and that, is that because of age or because of hormonal uh, differences than men? Yeah, it's both. They, they almost have to supplement because if their hormones aren't optimized, um, then they're going to be deficient in nitric oxide. And especially if they're older in their 50s, 60s and 70s, then their body's probably not making very little nitric, less than 10 percent of what they should be making. So in those older populations, you almost have to supplement on a daily basis. Hmm, that's super interesting. Okay, uh, really good to know. Um, so that as we can kind of wrap up today, because I know we, you have a hard stop here coming up, I wanted to, to just talk about kind of what is actionable. So like, what can we do? What can anybody do to start today? Both number one, to kind of monitor their nitric oxide levels, uh, and then also help to increase them. And so I don't know if it'd be helpful for you to talk about what you do, or if we want to make sure that it is kind of stays personalized to other people as well. Like, what should people do that is actionable? Like starting today, they listen to this podcast and hey, here's kind of a good protocol to like get going. Well, Jay, as you know, it's hard work doing this and it takes mm -hmm. a lot of discipline and time commitment. And what I found is most people don't have the discipline. Most people don't have the time commitment. That's the reason they're unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So we can preach and, and tell you to do these things all day long. But what I found over 20 years is very few people do until fear becomes a motivator, yeah. until there's a crisis, until they have a heart attack or until... They have, uh, you know, some type of crisis, and then they want to take action. But I, th I think it's important to be proactive instead of reactive. Yes. So, you know, I can tell you what I do every day, but I guarantee you 99% of the people probably don't do what I do and or won't do what I do, and 99% <laughs> of people aren't going to do or won't do what you do. But I'd love to hear it, man, because uh, we, we might could implement some things. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as you said, it, it's, it's pretty much the, the tenets of what you preach. It's sleep. You know, I, I try to go to bed early and get a full night's sleep because – our body repairs and regenerates when we sleep. If we're not getting good quality sleep, then we're going to age extremely fast and we're not going to be able to function the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, I drink lots of water, probably a gallon, two gallons of water every day. We have to have good, clean water, not municipal faucet water. Yep. We have and and to what does that do for nitric oxide? What does hydration do? Well, it just allows it, it basically, you know, your cells need good, clean water to function, to get the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. I mean, if our cells are dehydrated, then they don't function. Uh, the cell membranes, you know, become dysfunctional. And so the cells just don't perform. So you have, and plus it's 
flushes toxins out of your kidneys and your liver. So it's, it's part of detoxification. And then I sweat, even in the winter. You know, in Texas, we're fortunate to, to have warm weather, and I work outside when I'm not traveling. So I sweat every day, and then I sit in an infrared sauna every night before I go to bed. But I, I eat, you know, I'm a kind of grow up a meat and potatoes guy, but I, I work in some green leafies and some salads on occasion. But I also supplement, and then I work out every day, I'm, every day that I can. I usually start with a two- to three-mile run. And then I do 20 or 30 minutes of resistant exercise, and then I go sit in a sauna for 20 or 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Anything else you'd add to that, or is that that's the daily routine? Well, and I put in, you know, I go to a chiropractor twice a month. I try to get a massage twice a month. These are things that, uh, you know, are critically important. You have to have your muscle, musculoskeletal system aligned, and, you know, that causes most pain or, or neuromuscular in origin or musculoskeletal in origin. Uh, so I think a good chiropractor on occasions is a um, a good uh, preventive program as well as massage. You got to do, you know, get the toxins out, keep your muscles loose um, and then supplement with good, clean quality supplements. Yeah, indeed. You know, I think my, a lot of my routine sounds very similar in the sense that for me, I'm all about like getting outside as early as I can to direct forward movement, engage in optic flow, get good sunlight. So a lot of times my zone two, you know, cardio exercises in the morning, or I'll do a hit, you know, training session in the morning out in the sun. Um, you know, I'll engage in resistance training three to four times a week, sometimes four to five times a week. And then I also love sauna too. I, I get in a Swedish sauna about four times a week for about 20 minutes uh, to engage in, in, uh, you know, uh, increasing overall heat shock proteins and sirtuin synthesis. And then uh, I love the idea too of just like getting dirty, getting my microbiome full of kind of like being outside, like engaging with my feet in the ground. Uh, you know, th- these are things. And then obviously like, you know, engaging a good whole foods diet, eating, uh, you know, a lot of dark leafy greens. Um, so, you know, I've kind of gone through, you know, these stages where I've tried all different types of diets, you know, carnivorous diets all the way to, you you know, you know, purely vegan diets just to give it a try. I'm a scientist at heart. I mean, this is what I do. Uh, and, and I just have found that a good combination of, you know, bulky door, uh, dark leafy greens with, uh, with meat has you know served me really well and I perform better that way. And then, yeah, I just love this idea also too, of light exposure, breath work, um, engaging in heart rate variability training. I think all of these things can do, do the body well. So I'm totally on board with that. Um, any That's other hard thing- work. Yeah, Yeah, man, it it is really hard work. And and you're right, too. A lot of people like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Uh, But I think that again, like if you could take away just anything from this podcast, it's again, just focusing on those things that are really inhibiting your ability to create nitric oxide, such as using mouthwash, using fluoride, uh, you know, being stressed, not exercising, not kind of engaging in, you know, a diet that's full of dark leafy greens. Um, These are things that are just really important. So, you know, I appreciate you highlighting kind of the importance of all of these, uh, uh, Dr. Brian. Is there anything else you would you would add? No, I think it's look, it's as I said, it's a complex science, but it's really simple on what you do. Stop doing the things that disrupt and start doing the things that promote. Absolutely. Well, you have been a wealth of knowledge. I know we didn't even get into talking about nitric oxide and sports performance. I'll have to have you back on some other time for that. Um, Dr. Brian, how can people find you? How can they learn a little bit more about your work? You know, the patents, um, you know, anything that you've written, like where, where do people go to find you? Well, I'm certainly searchable on line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got an educational website <clears throat> called drnathansbryan.com. S is in Scott, drnathansbryan.com. You can follow me on Instagram at drnathansbryan. I do a monthly um, blog on my website <clears throat> where I put out some, usually some practical, timely, helpful tips to, you know, prevent the loss of nitric oxide production. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Again, everybody, I hope that you uh, go over to Dr. Brian's website, check out his Instagram account. It's super informative. Uh, Again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jay. All right, absolutely. Everybody take care and have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.